0: The Lens Pod is a medical student-run podcast for educational purposes only and reflects the opinions of the hosts and
1: guests. Hello, everyone, and welcome to The Lens Pod, a medical student ophthalmology podcast. My name is Victor.
0: And I'm Haley.
1: And we are your medical student hosts for this episode.
0: In this episode, we speak with Dr. Catherine Hu to learn about what medical students should know before getting involved in policy and advocacy in ophthalmology.
1: I'm extremely excited today to introduce Dr. Who. I first met Dr. Who at an ophthalmology conference where she gave a really inspiring and empowering talk about advocacy work that brought about policy change. At that moment, I knew that we had to have her on the show. So Dr. Who attended medical school at St. Louis University School of Medicine, then completed her ophthalmology residency at the John A. Moran Eye Center at the University of Utah, where she's currently completing her fellowship in Korea. Welcome to the podcast, Dr. Who. We are delighted to have you on today.
2: Thanks so much for having me. Excited to be here.
0: Before we start, we'd like to do a short icebreaker segment called Pick of the Week. So is there anything that you read, watched, listened to, or did lately that you really enjoyed and would recommend to our listeners?
2: Ooh, that's a good one. I actually... I don't know how appropriate, but I just watched a movie called Nobody yesterday. I don't know if you guys have watched it, but um, I'm a big Breaking Bad and Better Call Saul fan and Bob Odenkirk is in this. He's like, it's a exquisitely violent, but kind of a good like dark comedy action drama. So I actually really enjoyed it. So if you want to check it out, just definitely (laughs) R-rated.
1: Yeah, that's awesome. And uh, do you have a book or podcast or media recommendation for medical students interested in ophthalmology?
2: Yeah, I know others on your podcast have mentioned Tim Root's optho book, which I feel like is really great. Um, He also has, you know, online videos that also supplement that and also PDFs that are really digestible. Um, and then also at our own Moran Eye Center, we have something that's called Moran Core, and there is a basic ophthalmology review section that has topics written by medical students for medical students or, you know, primary care providers who are not in ophthalmology on various topics like, um, you know, basic eye eye exam approaches and things like that. So shameless plug for that, for sure.
1: <laughs> Thanks for sharing that. So just to get those started, your experience in advocacy and policy, Can you share with our listeners what advocacy means to you?
2: Yeah, yeah. I know advocacy can sound like a very broad and scary topic, but really, to me, it means just speaking up on a proposal or policy or issue that you're passionate about. It can be as little as having a conversation with somebody in clinic or just asking your patients, oh, have you heard about this policy in clinic? Um, or even you know, going as large as testifying in front of a legislative body. Uh, but really, it just means speaking up or speaking out and talking about issues that are uh, matter to you.
1: Okay, great. And I guess maybe from an ophthalmology standpoint or if you want to share more about how doctors in general, like, how do they contribute to advocacy?
2: Yeah, absolutely. So um, in Utah, we actually had a, a scope battle, and that's kind of the biggest, kind of the hottest topic, especially across the country in various states where practitioners like, you know, optometrists are widening or trying to broaden their scope of practice by doing surgeries, such as laser surgery, injections, intraocular injections, and procedures. And so that's kind of the the most recent and kind of the biggest project that I was involved with last year, last January in 2022, um, we had a scope battle in Utah. And so that involvement was we had a group of ophthalmologists on our board of directors at the state society level. So it was the Utah Op- uh, Ophthalmology Society. Um, and we organized speaking to legislators and then also testifying when they had a hearing for a bill that would support scope expansion.
0: I wanted to try and digest a little bit of what you were saying. For those listeners who may not be familiar with the impact of optometrists kind of expanding their practice, could you describe how that's harmful to patients and why it's important for ophthalmologists or residents, fellows, medical students to advocate for the protection of certain practices?
2: Absolutely. So in Utah in particular, the bill that was proposed last year by the optometrists was to widen the scope of practice, not only to have um, certain surgeries such as um, YAG, lasers, LPI, and SLT, um, but also intraocular injections and also just kind of offered um, the way that it was written. It also offered opportunity for any procedures that were not listed to be maybe fair game in the future. So just in terms of you know, our relationship with optometrists, first and foremost, is so valuable. They help so many of our patients. We refer a lot of our patients to optometrists, but there is a difference, of course, in our training In the fact that as physicians, we go to medical school and um, then also complete an additional four years of residency. And for a lot of legislators, they don't understand the difference in training. And um, the other thing too is as a young trainee, It's about kind of protecting the profession. And I know that we always say at AAO, they always say surgery by surgeons. And that's another thing that is really important as well. Another thing is that uh, in terms of the level of training for the optometrist learning to do these lasers, um, it could be something like a weekend course. Um, It may not be on a live patient, in my experience as a, as a resident, I did maybe 10 or 20 YAG lasers um, in my intern year, which we were really fortunate to do those procedures, but that was always supervised by an attending physician. And so it's uh, not clear how they're going to learn how to use these lasers safely. So a big part of it is definitely patient safety. And then also the fact that these are patients that may have complications and who's going to manage those complications. Typically, it's going to be ophthalmologists, So a lot of it does have to come down to patient safety and also the training as well for, uh, you know, a class of four ophthalmology residents. Training is as concentrated as possible and you're learning these and having repetition. And in a class of maybe 40 to 60 optometry students, that can definitely be a dilution of training.
0: I'm I'm really glad that you clarified that because... I actually had this conversation or a similar one with an attending when I was at women in ophthalmology and I kind of asked them, you know, why would this be a problem? And they mentioned a lot of what you said, but they also mentioned how misinformation or misadvertisement and it's advertised as this idea of expanding care to rural communities and having more optometrists with the scope of practice means better care for patients and more, more access But I think the reverse could actually happen as well. And these vulnerable populations or people that are in these underserved areas that no one else wants to work would now be having optometrists who aren't entirely trained um, to the level or the standard of care that's necessary. So I think that's another really interesting point that he brought up in our conversation and, um, again, just highlights the impact of going and having what sounds like a pretty simple conversation with the senator about, hey, let me just allow you to understand the differences between our training and their training and why this could be really detrimental or devastating for patient care.
2: Yeah and I'm really glad that you brought up the the fact of access because I think a lot of you know an argument is that there are patients that don't have access to an ophthalmologist but actually at least in our states and in many states if you map out the optometrists and ophthalmologists, there's usually one ophthalmologist within 15 to 30 minutes drive of every optometrist. So it's not an access to care issue. And that has actually been debunked in a lot of states. Um, And we have, you know, maps and infographics that we've given to legislators. And like you said, also, um, you know, opening the door for more opportunity to perform procedures doesn't always mean that there's going to be the correct use of procedure. For example, if you have A patient with an IOL who may need an IOL exchange in the future or of course there's you know complications of YAG pits things like that and there is actually a JAMA ophthalmology article that was written that showed that optometrists in uh, states in states that this is legal for optometrists to do uh, lasers um, they were actually more likely to repeat procedures or um, there was a higher frequency of SLT procedures for optometrists versus ophthalmologists. So I always say, you know, in my in, when I was preparing to do a testimony for our legislators, I was saying, um, you know, our, our training is, is a lot more nuanced and complex in the fact that, you know, good medical care is not always knowing how to turn on a button and push a laser. It's also, um, you know, about using clinical judgment and monitoring to disease progression and knowing when not to do a procedure is just as important as doing a procedure.
1: Wow, that's such a great point.
2: Oh, I had actually one point that this actually just came up on. Um, I think one of our attendings had a, has a Facebook group for, uh, for ophthalmologists. And in her Facebook group, somebody from another state where YAG lasers are legal, they actually get referrals. Ophthalmologists get referrals from optometrists to clear the eye for a YAG laser. So that was also kind of a kind of a shocking thing and a little controversial too, because hopefully if somebody is equipped to do a YAG laser, they should also be, they should also be equipped and also be confident that they know if, a, if an eye is safe or not to do a YAG laser. And that also kind of debunks again, the access to care issue because now these patients have repeat visits. So that was kind of a new factoid that I, or a new scenario that I, um, that I learned about just this past weekend. Um, And again, I think that optometrists are so valuable in the eye care team It's just more of the intentions behind, you know, scope of practice and what we can really advocate for in in patient safety.
0: Yeah, and I think that's an important point to make is like, we're not trying to speak badly about optometrists and I'm sure there are certain optometrists who are overqualified, you know, and could perform these procedures, but it's more about how easy misinformation can disseminate and patients could be at risk. And we don't know the training level as well. And we know that with residency, there's a certain criteria that has to be met to be validated by the licensing board.
2: Yeah, very well said. But outside of scope expansion, there's also plenty of other issues that you can get involved in, and that can be anything from vision science research, Medicare reimbursements for physicians um, and safety practices at the VA, things like that.
1: I'm wondering from the standpoint of some of these issues that you mentioned, is there a role for maybe medical students and resident physicians to impact and actually like influence policies that are currently being considered by governing bodies?
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I will say that I was no, like I was by no means an expert in any of these topics, and I'm still learning about them, but I actually first got involved through the AAO, and they have actually, everybody knows about the annual um, academy meeting, but there's also a huge advocacy conference every year, and that's in Washington, D.C. It's called Mid-Year Forum, for those of you who haven't heard about it, but usually your ophthalmology state society or your institution will sponsor trainees to go to Washington, D.C. every year. And that's actually where I found out about a lot of these issues. And it's really empowering because the AAO actually provides you with these like short snippets and these very, very summarized and well packaged materials. And you actually go to Capitol Hill and meet with senators and legislators about these national topics. And so it's really empowering because they have, you know, webinars and they have these like very digestible pieces of information and you feel really well informed. The other thing too is that for medical students, you can always get involved with uh, your state society. I think most state societies, and when I, when I say state society, it means that usually every state has their own ophthalmology society. And there's usually um, a branch or subgroup of young ophthalmologists. And I'm sure if you talk to the residents or um, other people that you're training with that are more familiar with the state society, there can be a chapter or an opportunity for you even to start a young ophthalmology chapter for your state society, and then just be more informed that way as well. For your guys' knowledge too, like the Midyear Forum is an awesome conference to go to because they literally will put together these packets. They'll be like, They'll be like, day one, these are the bullet points we'll discuss. Day two, this is the congressperson you're going to meet with. This is who the staff member, this is their name. These are their interests and their policy interests. And these are the committees they sit on. Pretty much give you a script with talking points. And then, of course, you come in with your own personal stories. So it's just really empowering. And it's just an awesome conference to go to. And they actually do have a ambassador's program, an advocacy ambassador program. And not only do usually... Uh, your institution or a, or your state society, or even some just like national, like women in ophthalmology will always sponsor somebody to go to the conference. There's just a lot of opportunities. Usually, usually those spots go to residents, but medical students can, I'm sure if you showed interest, they could have, they could work out something, or at least, that's at least an avenue that you can pursue.
1: So I'm actually curious, kind of like pivoting to how advocacy has played a role in like your own career and professional development, any like sort of like positive impacts that doing this kind of work has had in your own career development?
2: Yeah, that's a great question. I think, like I said, Mid-Year Forum was really eye-opening to me the first time I went to Washington, D.C., meeting all these amazing people at AAO and who work on Capitol Hill as well, just how passionate they are. And also, it's an amazing experience because, well, I will first say that um, I, I'm very lucky that at uh, the Moran Eye Center, they actually pledge to sponsor um, a resident to go to Midyear Forum at least once in um, their residency career. So they send four residents usually a year. So it's really just a really cool experience to um, kind of strategize with your co-residents and figure out what kind of topics you want to present. And it also really helps with you know public speaking and then just meeting all these people who are so passionate about these topics. And it can, like I said, range from, it doesn't have to be scope. Um, a lot of times a very common topic that they always advocate for every year to our legislators is Medicare reimbursements for physicians, vision science research from the NIH, and then safety practices at the VA. Um, and those are all topics that I think anyone who you know, anyone can get behind, really.
1: I appreciate you sharing that, and you you had mentioned about uh, practicing public speaking. I actually want to ask you a quick question about, it can be quite a daunting task for medical students who spend a lot of time studying to, and for other trainees, to get up in front of people and, you know, advocate for things and practice their public speaking. Do you have any advice on overcoming those fears?
2: Yeah, the first thing I would say is that I will be the first person to tell you that I am not great at public speaking or it doesn't come easily to me. And I think that a lot of people who come off as really confident, there is really no secret around it. It's just a lot of practice. So as unglamorous as it is, I am somebody who has to write out a script word for word and practice it a ton, especially if there's like, you know, PowerPoint or formal presentation. Um, I've always had to put in time to like rehearse a script and practice slide transitions. Um, There are definitely those people who can seem supernatural and perform off the cuff, but for me, it's just been kind of about repetition. Um, whether it's grand rounds or even testifying in front of a legislative body, that's kind of the best advice I have. Especially practicing and saying things physically out loud and timing yourself so you know how long it actually takes you to get through a presentation, um, and then also seeking advice and feedback from you know somebody in your senior, like a resident, in terms of actually you know the the value of your voice. I would not be nervous about that. As in, as a medical student even, you can share personal stories. And I think that legislative bodies or even other you know, other people who are in charge of policy connect usually more to the younger trainees. They see you more as an even playing field than a full-fledged attending. So sharing a personal story can be just as powerful. For example, when I was preparing for my testimony for our scope battle last year, I didn't really go through nuts and bolts and the nitty-gritty details of our training and differences per se. But I told a story about how the first time I performed a YAG laser, it was at the VA on a veteran with Parkinson's disease. And the laser was there are just you know variables that you can't really control for or foresee, like your target kind of going in and out of focus, the patient being really uncomfortable, being very nervous and things like that. And how having an attending with a lot more experience can provide a lot of support. And then I kind of went into again what it means to be a physician and what it means to be able to have the privilege to perform these procedures safely, but also know when not to perform procedures. So again, if you kind of tell your personal story, that can definitely speak volumes.
1: Oh, I feel like that's such great advice. And I feel like in my, for my own experience, when I use story and I tell things vividly from my own personal experience, like people look at themselves and they realize like they're like oh wow I never thought about it like that or I never really thought that you know that this is the experience that you're going through and I think that's especially important in medicine we see a lot of very specific niche things in the hospital or wherever clinic that we're working that you know people that are making policy decisions are not necessarily seeing on a daily basis if at all so um, I think them having that perspective is so important and what what you said is very true like Everybody, every healthcare worker's um, experience is valuable, especially when presenting that information to people who are making these very important policy decisions.
0: I also liked that you mentioned talking to yourself because I think that's something that I've always done, and it feels really silly, but it's the best way to kind of hear something you're saying and kind of realize sometimes that maybe I shouldn't say that or maybe I need to reword that because it's not coming out the way that I want it to. And I think that's advice like for interviewing and any other form of, you know, having to speak uh, with authority or someone that you want to impress.
2: Yeah, absolutely. I'll be like practicing parts of a presentation in the car. I was going to say car rides, (laughs) (laughs) things like that. Yeah, so yeah, I'm very jealous of people who are just seem at least on the surface supernatural about it. But uh, for me, it's just been a lot of reps. And that's, I think it's also, I mean, I thought I love that question from you guys because I feel like there's this sometimes facade that people who give these amazing presentations just do it like they just came up with it yesterday and it's flawless. And I think that, no, people definitely have stage fright or public speaking anxieties. And a lot of work and practice goes into, um, at least in the beginning, for a lot of people. So I thought that was an awesome question because I think it can be really intimidating as a med student.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And I think this is more a little more philosophical, but I read the book Outliers recently. And I, I wish, yeah, I wish I'd read it earlier in my life because it just talks about how no one is really... Perfect at anything naturally. Like someone either works super hard or is put in the optimal conditions with the right, just like genetic skill set or willingness to learn, and everything can be mastered. And I feel like we have this false impression of medicine that everyone is just so good at everything and it's so effortless. And that's just not the reality. Anyone could be good at public speaking if you want to be.
2: Yeah, it's the same thing when you guys, like, when you guys are applying and then get into residency and Clinical encounters and then surgery. You'll like do your first surgery and you'll be like, "That was so horrible! I can't believe I'm here. What am I doing? It's ne- it's never gonna be good, and it's like definitely not. Like you just gotta get those reps."
1: So, in, in addition to the sort of like positive impact that this advocacy work has had on your career, you're also wondering if your identity as a surgeon. Or trainee has ever clashed with your identity as an advocate, and if so, how did you navigate that?
2: Oh, that is a really good question. I can't say that my role as an advocate has ever clashed with my role as a trainee or a surgeon. If anything, I feel like it's made me more comfortable. I mean, I think that even as medical students, you advocate for your patients every day. You know, if you see something on rounds, or if you feel like um, you can do better for a patient, either from contacting their family or speaking up when they have a complaint. I think that we advocate for our patients every day And this is just an extension of that. It has been a little bit uncomfortable uh, in certain situations. These are not fun conversations to have, especially if you have close colleagues who are optometrists. I have very close friends who are optometrists who I absolutely love and adore and respect. And they've actually, we've had conversations about this and they've told me that it's a very small subset, but a very vocal subset of optometrists who want to expand care in this way. So I would just say it hasn't really interfered with my career, but it actually has open the door for uncomfortable conversations, but also I think a lot of personal growth and education as well.
1: Wow, that was that was such a great response. Like they literally struggling to find the words on how to how to comment on that. I, I think it's I think it's very true that you know, even today I can think of like a few examples in which I was advocating on specific things for my patient. And it's not like people were directly applying a force against me trying to like advocate for my patient. It was just literally certain things about, you know, the, the time and systemic frames of operating in like certain systems that, you know, require me to like step on and say like, well, I think that my patient needs this at this moment. I know that like the resources are limited, or I know that we can't do this right now, but they, this person could possibly benefit from this or taking time out of my very busy schedule and say, you know what, like, I think this is a patient that would just really benefit from some sort of like, you know, phone call or follow up. And, Letting them know that, hey, like, have you done this yet? Like, <laughs> I like, I think it's very important that you do this, or it's very important that that I um, make a phone call to connect you with this other professional or other physician who can possibly help you with this issue that I personally can't help you with. I think those are things that are very important, and I think that we practice every day as medical students and as healthcare professionals. Yeah, think um, if we have an opportunity or or practice skills in you know advocating on a on a larger level and making a. Uh, change on a macro level, like that's also pretty cool as well. So I really do appreciate you sharing that.
0: Yeah. And I I think those conversations can also help you fuel your debate. You know, if someone kind of gives you a, an argument, you can think about it and then you can develop a response for it. So I think it can also be beneficial. And like you said, advocacy doesn't have to be going, you know, to the house of representatives for your state, but Also, I've seen it through research and you mentioned, you know, that article talking about how there's more repeat procedures for optometrists and it's kind of epidemiology or getting the numbers out there to show and define the problem. So I definitely think there's many ways students can get involved and you've touched on a lot of them, which is great.
2: Yeah. And I think you just brought up a really good point that, again, that I had kind of touched on in the beginning, that advocacy doesn't have to be you going to the state capitol and testifying in a a bill hearing. I think that that's what people think of when they think about advocacy and that can be a part of it if that opportunity arises, but it's also just having small conversations even with attendings. Um, A lot of the uh, a lot of the kind of mobilization of getting people motivated to contact their legislator, as you can tell, you know, or as you probably know, inertia is is really, really hard sometimes to overcome. And just picking up the phone can be, 90% of it is doing it, but it can be really, really, really difficult to want to pick up a phone to talk to somebody. But a lot of the efforts and grassroots conversation uh, conversations were just asking someone like, hey, what do you think about this issue? Is this something that I should be worried about? Are you worried about it? Um, and that can also just, you know, have a really good snowball effect and a big impact in a good way.
1: Yeah, speaking on that, I think you like you touched on on quite a few ways for students and residents to get involved. Um, maybe like if you can give like a just a very um brief summary on like let's say like I'm a third year medical student or second year, first year, doesn't matter. Like I feel very passionate about an issue. How can I get involved today?
2: Yeah, that's a really good question. I would say most states will have a state, not only a state ophthalmology society, which I think is great to contact, you know, who's ever the president of that, or if there's a resident representative talking to them about how you can get involved with a certain issue. And then medicine at large too, there's usually, we have the Utah Medical Association and that's just the larger physicians association for the state. And most states will also have, you know, a, um, a state physician society. Those are great ways to get in touch with other doctors and attendings who are passionate about the same issue or get resources from their lobbyists or even being connected to a legislator if you even want to write a bill or even see what resources are out there for you on this specific topic. Of course, like I I know a lot of residents are involved with QI projects and that's also a form of advocacy. So, you know, doing a QI project, doing quality improvement, working with a resident whether it's clinic flow or paperwork or doing a certain process a certain way, I think that's also a great way about, you know, your own institution and how you can be involved in it.
0: Are there any do's or don'ts when it comes to advocacy?
2: I would just say the number one thing is like a big do, and maybe same along of a don't is just be really respectful. A lot of these, um, you know, a lot of these issues can be very polarizing, and they can get really heated. And um, you know, you can kind of see sometimes the best and the worst in people, just in any either political issue or a legislative issue. So just you know. The biggest thing, I think, is just to be respectful of both sides, hear out both sides, but also, you know, speak your truth and be authentic to your experience.
0: And from your experience, what do you feel is a good or important takeaway for students that may be listening to this podcast?
2: Yeah, I would say as a trainee, it can be really scary to think about yourself in advocacy, but the reality is that we have the least to lose in speaking up and the most to gain for our future profession. Um, A lot of attendings may be, or especially private practice attendings, they may be really supportive, um, but it's harder for them or more difficult to speak out to them, Uh, sorry, it's more difficult for them to speak up um, or want to speak up because um, they're maybe fearful of referral patterns and things like that, or relationships that they have with other providers. And as trainees, we're actually really shielded and mostly protected from that. So um, I would say that's for sure a big takeaway. And then most of the time, also, legislators connect more with young advocates than those that are full-fledged attendings. So being in training, you just never know what small conversation or personal story that you share may be a tipping point for someone in impacting them.
1: I, mean, I, I think that's very cool. And I, I really do appreciate you sharing that with us and coming on. And I think the medical student and resident audience are going to learn a lot. They're going to hear this and they're going to be like, oh, wow. Like, I think med students and um, people in healthcare in general are, tend to be very passionate people. And you know, no matter what cause that they want to like work towards, students could listen to this and say like, well, hey, this is a way I can get involved. Maybe I want to be at Capitol Hill talking to uh, Congress people, or maybe I want to do something smaller, like join like a state society and like attend their meetings and tell them, hey, I think these are the issues that you guys should be focusing on. Like no matter how big or how small the level of participation, like at least we kind of are getting some sort of a tool set to know that this is an avenue in which we can make an impact. So I think that's very cool. And so thank you.
0: Yeah, and that's something I just wanted to comment on as well is I am happy that you were able to give these concrete examples of policy and what's going on because I think in some specialties like OB-GYN, for example, It's obvious, you know, all the abortion policy going on, how passionate people can get. And when you're a student thinking about your career, at least for me, I was like, I want to do something where there's these opportunities to advocate for something or advocate for my patients in a way outside of the clinic. It's nice to know as a person interested in ophthalmology, like how that applies to our field. And it's not really talked about that much to students at least. So it's cool to be able to give a clear example of, yeah, this is one one thing that we're dealing with.
2: Yeah, of course. And I would say that for most, and you can include this too, but I would say that the vast majority in my experience, state societies for an ophthalmology state society, sorry, ophthalmology state society, um, usually the trainee membership fee is waived. So, you know, usually there's a membership fee for all these societies and usually they're waived for trainees. The other thing too is uh, you'd have to check on AAO's website, but for mid-year forum, There are usually some sessions that are virtual. And again, if you wanted to attend the conference, but you couldn't go in person, there's at least resources and webinars and maybe some conference sessions that you could attend virtually. Again, hopefully at least um, in my past experience, trainees, usually the registration is discounted or waived. So that's been a huge also resource for people who want to get involved or at least listen to the issues that people are passionate about.
1: Thank you, Dr. Who, for taking the time to teach our listeners about policy and advocacy in ophthalmology. I'm positive that your story will be impactful for the journeys of medical students and residents alike who are interested in making an impact from an advocacy standpoint.
0: And to learn more about The Lens, you can follow us on Twitter at at the lens underscore OPH and make sure to subscribe to our newsletter to get easy to read summaries of the latest ophthalmology research in your inbox every week.